At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Good Morning, as we learn from the cries of Israel recorded in the book of Lamentations. Together, we'll discover the depth of God's love for us, even in seasons of suffering, and learn to take our sorrows to the Savior. I'm at the end of my rope. Have you ever felt or said those words? How many parents said that like five times over the last two weeks while school is waiting to end? You're like, I can't do this anymore. Like, I'm at the end of my rope. It's a, it's a funny phrase. It's a phrase we use sometimes when we kind of reach the end of ourselves a little bit or we just feel like, I, I can't do this anymore. It actually originates the phrase, I'm at the end of my rope, from back in the day when they would tie animals to a stake or a fence to graze. And what would happen is the animal eventually would graze all the grass around it, but when it reached the end of its rope, it ran out of resources and could no longer continue to graze in that way. And so it can be brought into kind of our English vernacular in a way in which we use it to talk about those times where we're kind of at the end of ourselves, where we feel like we don't have any energy or resources left, where we just like, like I can't do this anymore and I can't continue. I remember several years ago coming to a place where I felt like I was at the end of my rope. I was pastoring another church in a different area and just going through a challenging season. There was just a lot of pressure um, during that time within the church. And uh, I was also living in a, in, a, in a part of the city that I was in that was under-resourced. And so we were dealing with a lot of challenges that way and, and just often constantly encountering just the brokenness of where we were um, on top of that, Alicia and I were in a season where like things just weren't right in our marriage. I don't know if you've ever been there, but we just like were not on the same page. Um, it felt like my friendships around me were a struggle. Um, and on top of that, I was really struggling myself with my identity and my relationship with the Lord. And I remember in that season, just at times being like, God, I feel like I've got nothing left to give. Like, I don't know what you want or what you expect of me. And it often felt like God was like a million miles away sometimes. Like I didn't even know what to pray. All I could say is like, I I just have nothing left. I think all of us at times hit end of the rope moments. Sometimes we hit those in small ways. Sometimes we hit those moments in large ways in our life where we experience things that completely turn our world upside down. And it's often, if you've been in that moment, you know it's often there that kind of the questions begin to emerge. Questions like, where are you, God? How do I even move forward? And what does forward even look like? Why is this happening? What is going on? Often the end of the rope moves us, brings us to the end of ourselves where we're trying to figure out what forward looks like. Today in our text, in Lamentations chapter 3, we meet someone who's in the middle of a kind of of end-of-your-rope moment. He's a man who's experienced incredible suffering and pain. In fact, in the very first verse of Lamentations 3, he labels himself as, I am the man who has seen affliction. He's the author of Lamentations, and he had experienced one of the most devastating moments in the history of his people. 
Lamentations was written, as we reminded ourselves through this series, it was written after one of the most disastrous events in the history of the nation of Judah and the city of Jerusalem, when in 587 AD, the Babylonian army came into the city and completely leveled it to the ground and took the people of Judah into captivity. The author of Lamentations experienced this catastrophic moment firsthand. And Lamentations is written out of that moment in a series of five poetic laments in response to the devastation that he experienced. The author was present and there. In the first two chapters, he wrestles with the reality. In Lamentations chapter 1, he essentially cries out on behalf of the city. He pictures Jerusalem like a widow in mourning who has lost her loved one and had been left devastated. In chapter 2, he laments God's judgment against their sin and injustice. But in chapter 3, the author begins to take a personal turn. He recounts his own suffering and the reality of his own affliction and feels like he's at the end of his rope. But there's also an interesting shift that takes place in chapter 3 that's important for us to recognize today. You can actually see it in two key verses in the passage that we are looking at this morning. You see the author come to the end of his rope in verse 18, where he says, So I say, my endurance has perished. I got nothing left. I can't do this anymore. And so has my hope from the Lord. His hope is dead. But then, three verses later, In verse 21, he says, But this I call the mind, and therefore I have hope. It raises the question naturally within the journey of the book and in the chapter itself. How does a man who has experienced such affliction, such pain, move just in three verses from hopelessness to hope? How can he go from a place of saying, My hope is dead. I literally have nothing left to suddenly feeling the awakening of hope within his soul. How does he move forward in a season where he feels like he's utterly depleted? Well, chapter 3 gives us the insight into how not only this happens for the author, but how we can find hope in the midst of suffering ourselves in our own stories and experience. Because what chapter 3 reminds us is that through the practice of lament, which we've been looking at throughout this journey, that a lament allows us to hope. That when we are in the worst moments of our lives, we can often begin to wonder if there is hope, if there is an opportunity to move forward. But what the author reminds us is that hope is possible in the midst of the most intense grief affliction, and suffering. If you're here this morning and you're in that place, you feel like you're in that place of despair, you feel like you're at the end of your rope, what I hope you will see as our time through Lamentations 3 is that hope is possible. That it's possible even in the midst of your worst moments. And if you aren't in that place this morning, I still want you to see that hope is possible because it's oftentimes we're in the non-worst moments that we prepare for the worst moments. 
I had a wise mentor pastor who once say that we often prepare for the valley while we are on the mountain. And so whether you're in the valley this morning or on the mountain, Lamentations 3 teaches us how we can experience hope in the midst of suffering, and it's through the journey of lament. Two clear things will come out in this passage that I want us to look at together, and the first one is found in the first 18 verses. So I'm just going to read for a minute, because I want you to hear this author as he expresses his anguish and what he is dealing with. Lamentations 3 starts, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He's made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set, as a set me as a target for his arrow. He drove it into my kidneys, the arrow of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made, my, made me cower in ashes. Hopefully you can hear the anguish of the author as he pours out his heart to God. But what he teaches us is that an important step in the journey of lament is that you and I must acknowledge our affliction. We must acknowledge our affliction. He says from the very get-go, I am the man who has seen affliction. He has suffered personally. And in chapter 3, he begins to lay out the reality of his suffering. Chapter 3 is the most intense part of the book, and it's the most strategic poem that's written in the book of Lamentations. Remember, Lamentations is a series of five poems. Four of those poems follow an acrostic, an acrostic structure, meaning they follow which each line beginning with a subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet. If we were to do that in English, it means the first line's A, the second line's B, the third line's C, the fourth line's D, and so on and so forth. Chapters 1, 2, and 4 have this structure, but in chapter 3, that structure gets intensified where he essentially does a series of three lines, each beginning with the same letter. So instead of going A, B, C, D, it goes A, 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 B, 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 C, 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 D, 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 and so on and so forth. It highlights the unique weight of chapter 3 within the book, which is really the centering point of Lamentations. And as he begins this poem, he attributes the reality of his suffering in a dynamic way solely to God. He says that his affliction is because he's under the rod of his wrath, that he's been driven into darkness. Throughout these first 18 verses, he repetitively uses the word he, calling out and accusing God for the afflictions that he suffered. While certainly we know historically that the Babylonians were the one that caused such anguish by their work, the author understands that God was ultimately behind it. 
the author acknowledges by his lament that he believes that God alone is sovereign over the events of history. And so he calls out against him. You know, I think oftentimes when we deal with the reality of suffering in our lives, and I see this a lot in Christian circles, whether it's on our lives or in our world, we often want to make God less sovereign. As if he isn't behind the events of history, then we can get him off the hook for the pain that we often experience. But this is the exact opposite turn of what the biblical authors do when they deal with the reality of pain and suffering in the world. They instead recognize God's sovereignty, and it's what fuels their lament. The author sees God behind the events that he has experienced, and therefore he cries out to him. And he begins to use a series of metaphors to heighten the sense of anguish that he has been experiencing. He likens God in the first several verses to a harsh shepherd who has brought his rod to bear on his sheep. He then moves into a metaphor of picturing God as a jailer where he's been imprisoned in an inescapable prison under heavy chains and that God's ignoring his cries for help. He then likens God to a predator that devours his prey and then almost in the same breath likens him to a hunter who's hunting down his target. What we see is that because of the circumstances of his life, the author feels beaten, jailed, hunted, And it's led him to a place of deep grief and despair. So much so that he says he's mocked and ridiculed by all people. That he's in utter torment, likening it to the eating of dirt or gravel and being humiliated in ashes. What is clear from the first 16 verses of Lamentations chapter 3 and the imagery in is that he has painted a complete picture of utter anguish and affliction. So much so that he cries out in verse 17, My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. In the book, the author has reached his lowest point. Shalom has left. Happiness is gone. And he has no energy or resources left. Whatever being at the end of your rope is, he's hit that point. Or if we used another metaphor, we'd say he's reached rock bottom. It doesn't get worse or lower than this. When you feel like God is against you and you don't even know what to do and you have nothing left. Through six stanzas stanzas and 18 lines of intricate poetry, he lays out the reality of his pain. He doesn't hide from it. He doesn't excuse God from it. He just simply states it in one of the most powerful and descriptive ways that we find within our Bibles. And I think one of the things that we're reminded of in these verses is that one of the most important parts of the journey of lament is acknowledging our affliction. That when we are in the end of our rope moments, we must acknowledge the pain and suffering that we experience and the toll that it takes on us. God can handle our pain, even when we're accusing him in the process. As Christians, we believe the Bible is inspired, that God, by the Holy Spirit, is behind the words written by this author. So think for a moment that God 
would actually inspire in his own word a man's accusation against him. If God can inspire those words, surely he can handle our own accusations. Surely he can handle the moments in our life where we come to the end of our rope and we cry out and say, this doesn't seem fair. Why are you against me? What is the deal? And we bring our accusations. What the text reminds us is that God invites us to be honest and real with our suffering in all its raw and painful reality. We don't have to hide from it. We don't have to put a happy Christian spin on the worst moments of our lives. That is not what God is asking for. You see, I think what often for some reason happens in the church culture and in Christian culture is that when we experience those end-of-your-rope, rock-bottom moments, we feel like somehow faith means we've got to like cover them up, put a nice face, and feel good about it. And many of us experience those moments and feel some sort of pressure to like ignore or lessen or not be truly honest with the pain we're experiencing. We stuff it down deep inside. We, we push it away. We take those moments. And when people ask us how we're doing, we say like, we're fine. But we're not fine. We're hurting and we're aching. Oftentimes we mistake faith for ignoring our emotional anguish as if faith calls us to not be real with our pain. Or sometimes we don't acknowledge our affliction because we compare it to other people. We say things like, well, well my suffering isn't as bad as so-and-so's. What I went through isn't how terrible they are. So therefore, I shouldn't have any reason to lament and I shouldn't make a big deal out of it. Or we go the opposite way where we look at other people and we say, my suffering is so much worse than everyone else's, no one could understand. And there's no way I could actually move forward. But here's the problem with all of that. Whether you put the happy, clappy Christian face on, whether you ignore your pain, whether you compare it and lessen it, or whether you maximize it, they all make the same fundamental mistake, which is they fail to invite God into it. Acknowledging our affliction is important because it invites God into the reality of our pain. And that's where God wants to meet us. Hope emerges from the acknowledgement of the reality of our pain, not by ignoring it. And so lament invites us to be real and honest with the suffering and affliction we face. Lament starts with turning to God and complaining. That's what we see. Now, it doesn't stop there. We're going to see that. But that's where it starts. And sometimes that's where we need to start. Several years ago, I, I got a phone call to do a funeral for a man who passed away in his late 20s. He died due to some complications with pain medicine that he was taking and died in his sleep. And the reason that I got the phone call was because I had done the wedding for him and his wife almost exactly one year prior to when he had passed away. And so through that season, as I ministered to his wife and we talked and met, I saw the anguish that she felt in losing her husband only after a year of marriage. And I'll never forget, there was one day where we were having a conversation on the phone and she was pouring out her heart just saying, like, I don't understand why God would do this and why God would allow this to happen. And at one moment, just through tears and anguish, she just said, I really hate God right now. 
Now, as a pastor, when you hear those words, right, you want to give all the nice Christian Bible answers that you know. You want to be like, you don't have to hate God. God loves you. He's good. He has a purpose. And all of that is true. But to give that sort of response just feels like it'd be minimizing the reality of what she was experiencing. As if we just say the right words and somehow we cover up the pain. So in that moment on the phone, I just said, hey, it's perfectly okay to feel that way. God is not so petty. He's not so emotionally needy that he somehow needs you to not feel what you're feeling when you're suffering. He's not up there like, oh my goodness, don't say that. No, God invites us to acknowledge the reality of our pain and suffering because that's where he wants to meet us. Sometimes you might find yourself in a place where you hate God, where you don't understand the suffering that you're going through. I guarantee if we went around the room, some of you have experienced such terrible moments in your life that you felt that pain in your soul and you didn't understand. God doesn't ask you to ignore that. He asks you to just be honest about it, to just admit it. Complain to him. Feel the freedom to go before the Lord and say, you really suck right now, God, and I don't get what you're up to. That's okay. And we have to be okay as Christians with that reality. If we create a culture where people have to stuff their pain, where they can't acknowledge their affliction, we fail to experience the healing and the hope that God ultimately wants to bring. And so that's where we have to go. God can handle your sadness, your depression, your frustration, your accusations, and even your anger. He's okay with it. Because that's where he wants to meet us. Not outside of our pain, but right in the middle of it. And it's right in the middle of the author's pain, when he's at his lowest point, that we begin to see hope emerge, and he embraces the second part of the journey of lament. Look at verse 19. He writes, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. When we're in the place of lament, we must acknowledge our affliction, but the second part of the journey is to remember your God. If you've been around the church at all, you've likely heard or maybe even sung some of these words and these verses before, but I want to encourage us this morning, don't just run to the familiar. It's important that we walk through the author's journey and learn what it looks like to turn from the place of acknowledging our afflictions, which is important, to remembering our God. In his turn, he calls for remembering. Remember my affliction. Don't forget about it. He doesn't ignore it. He highlights the low place of humility that he finds himself. But in verse 21, a massive shift takes place within the book as the whole, within the chapter, but also within the author uh, himself. We see the move from hopelessness to hope. 
But what leads to this? What does he remember that brings hope in the midst of anguish? Well, the first thing we see is that he remembers God's character. That little phrase that he uses in the text, but this I call to mind, could just as easily be translated from the Hebrew as, but this I return to my heart. Where we often see the mind as the center of our lives, the Hebrews saw the heart as the center of their lives. It was the core of who we are, where reason, wisdom, and emotions, and the will were. As one author says, the heart is the essence of who we are how we think and feel and carry out our living in relationship to God and the world. What the author doing here is he's recovering or returning to himself a core belief about God. Hope emerges when he returns what he knows and believes about who God is and what God has done. You see, remembering is a key step in the journey of lament. Because it invites us not only to acknowledge our pain, but to remember what is true about God in the middle of our pain. That's where hope is found, by remembering who God is in the lowest moments. Mark Vrogrop, who wrote the book Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, says this, that lamentation shows us that hope does not come from a change of circumstances. Rather, it comes from what you know to be true despite the situation in front of you. See, oftentimes when we're suffering, we just want to get the suffering over with as fast as possible. So we ignore it on the other side, or we don't actually deal with the reality of it. But it isn't the change of circumstances that brings hope. It's remembering God in the middle of the circumstance that ultimately brings hope. But what's he remembering? Well, he's remembering what has been revealed about God's character. Verse 22, the author offers essentially a reflection on when God reveals his character to Moses in the Torah in Exodus 34, where God would say to Moses, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The author draws this truth back to the reality of his being and says, the steadfast love, the Hebrew word there is chesed, it's the covenantal love of God. It never ceases. His mercies do not end. They are new every morning. He reminds himself that God is steadfast in his love, that his mercies and compassion are eternal. And so he declares, great is your faithfulness. He's drawn his heart back and remembered the character of God, reminding himself that God is love and mercy and faithful, and that those things are inexhaustible in the nature and character of God. And it's here that hope begins to emerge, not because his circumstances have changed, but because he has remembered that his circumstances haven't changed God. That's where hope comes from. Remembering God provides hope because it reminds us that suffering is not the end of the story. That God is faithful to his character. And that's what you need when you're in a dark place. In August of 2010, 33 miners were trapped hundreds of feet underground in Chile. Headlines broke out the world over about these miners and the rescue operation to bring them back to the surface. 
Overall, it would take 69 days before the miners were ultimately rescued. Many of you might remember those headlines. When they emerged, the men were hailed for their endurance, their courage in the midst of a harrowing situation. But afterwards, stories began to come out from interviews of just how desperate and destitute they felt. They contemplated suicide. At one point, they even recounted that they resigned themselves that if anyone died, they might have to move to cannibalism just to survive for the lack of food. But all of those thoughts and that reality for the miners changed on day 17 when a drill from the surface made its way and broke into their location. It changed everything for them in that moment. As one miner recounted in an interview, he said, I was so weak I couldn't even stand. And then all of a sudden I found myself jumping for joy. How can you go from one minute not being able to stand to suddenly having the energy in your soul to jump for joy? Well, the drill represented hope. The drill reminded them that this wasn't the end of the story and that rescue was on its way. Now, it would still take another 52 days before those miners would ultimately be surfaced. But what brought them hope to endure was the reality and hope of redemption. You see, hope can only emerge when we believe there is a future ahead. Because hope is not rooted in the circumstances. It's rooted in the reality of God's character. And that character reminds us there's a promised future. That God is bringing redemption to his world. And no matter what suffering happens, God will be faithful to redeem it. To use it for his glory and bring it to his purposed ends. So he remembers God's character and it brings him hope. But there's a second thing he remembers He remembers God is our portion. I love verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. See, hope comes when we remember that God is the ultimate end of everything. That he is our inheritance. We can endure suffering and have hope Because what we know is that in the end, we get God. That's our hope. That the suffering we endure will ultimately lead us to experiencing more of God in our lives. As Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Whatever suffering you are facing, You can rest and have hope because it will lead you to experience more of God in your life. The word the author used here says, my soul is the Hebrew word nephesh. It refers to the whole person in Hebrew, to everything that we are. And what the author here is declaring with his whole being is that God is his portion. That through the suffering and the trials that he's facing, but because of God's character of who he is and what he's done, that the author will ultimately receive the Lord as his inheritance. And it surfaces for us an important truth that we have to remember in the midst of suffering, and it's this. If you have God, you have everything. If you have 
God, you have everything. God is not a means to an end. He is the end. He is the thing our lives, our souls long for. He's the one who brings meaning to every facet of our existence, and he is the only one that can satisfy our souls. God is what you need when you are at the end of your rope, not just the changing of your circumstances. And sometimes it's only when we're in our lowest moments, when everything is stripped away, that we can actually begin to encounter the reality that God himself is enough. Christopher Wright, in his commentary on Lamentations, recounts the, worker from, or the words of a friend who worked in Rwanda shortly after the genocide. He writes that there, his friend told him of a, meeting a man who was destitute by the roadside. He had lost his whole family and home, but his words were unforgettable. Wright writes, I never knew Jesus was all I needed till Jesus was all I had. You see, sometimes it's in the moment when you're at the end of your rope that you realize that Jesus is all you need, that he actually is enough. And because he is enough, God is faithful in his covenant to provide himself to you. What you need in the midst of suffering is God, and God is faithful to meet you in that place. This is why recounting the word of God is so important. It's why the author reflects on God's word to draw his heart back to the reality that God is his portion. Because it's the word of God that draws us back to the truth of Jesus. That he is our portion and our hope. Because the reality that we see in God's word is that Jesus was a man who saw even greater affliction. That ultimately, Though he was innocent and sinless of all wrongdoing, he took God's righteous rod of wrath on our behalf on the cross. That Jesus was placed in a grave of darkness and he felt the Father turn his hand against him. That though he cried out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That God would turn his ear from the, his son. And that he would take the punishment for our sin. And that God would do this, that Jesus would be afflicted so that you and I might know the never-ending love and mercy of God. He took our sin so we could know God's love. And then he rose from the grave. He announced the victory. He said, the story isn't over. Death and suffering don't win and he invites everyone who will put their faith in him to experience the never-ending eternal love and mercy of God in a new creation forever. God's word reminds us time and time again, Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our portion. Jesus is what new creation is about. It's Jesus we need and it's Jesus God provides. And that's why we can have hope in the midst of and the journey of lament leads us to that place. Lament calls us to the path of acknowledging our affliction and remembering our God so that we can find hope in Christ. And what I want to do this morning is to invite you, to continue to invite you into that journey 
I know you carry that pain. I know you have those moments where you felt like you hate God. And God invites you to embrace the journey of lament with those moments. In your bulletin, I gave you a little learning to lament worksheet. It comes from Mark Brogrop's book. And it's a simple way he tries to essentially take the framework of the Psalms and Lamentations of how we can engage God in our pain. He invites us to four simple steps, steps that we see even within our passage this morning. That lament begins with turning to God. It begins with bringing our complaints to him, to acknowledging our affliction. And then it comes to asking God for what we need. And then as we remember God in that moment, we trust. We trust that he is enough. And Vrogop gives you some steps that you can do on your own and a guide to use even some of the psalms for language to help you as you walk your own journey of lament. And let me encourage you, I've done this myself, it is extremely helpful in how we can bring our pain and suffering to the Lord. This is an important journey that every one of us must take with the pain in our lives. Lament is imperative to the discipleship and following of Jesus. And let me tell you one last story to emphasize why I think it's an important journey for us all to take. One day there was a man who was vacationing at his family's beach home in the panhandle of Florida. He decided one day, it was beautiful out, that he was going to take the family boat out and just kind of explore and tool around the ocean. And so he hopped in the boat and headed south out to, to explore. But as he was out, after a little while, suddenly... When he was a good distance from shore, a storm rose up on the ocean out of nowhere. And suddenly, as the winds picked up and the waves raised, he found himself in his boat being tossed to and fro. He was smashed around the cabin, battling to survive and keep and hope the boat stayed afloat. After several hours of just the excruciating reality of the storm, finally it passed and the sea began to settle down. As the man looked around and took stock of his situation, he realized that he was in a pretty dire spot. He'd been beaten around the boat so much that he had several bruises. He wondered at one point if his leg might even be broken. He realized that his navigation equipment had been completely destroyed. And on top of that, he had no idea where he was. Deciding to try to make his way home, he was able to get the engine started and tried to begin to make his way towards what he thought was shore, but after a little bit realized that all he could continue to see was ocean. He recognized that he was running low on gas, and so he kind of turned the engine off for a moment to try to take stock of what he ultimately could do. Finally, in just his pain, In the reality of what he's experiencing, he just sat down on the deck of the boat for a moment and and hung his head. And he just thought for a moment, I think I'm going to die out here. I don't know what to do. He sat there for a little while as the sun went down and it turned to night and just feeling destitute, he looked up at the night sky in a moment of just anger and frustration he said, why, God, did you bring me out here to die? But it was in the midst of crying out and looking at the sky that he saw something. He 
saw the outline of the Big Dipper. And when he saw it, something from science class a long time ago clicked in his brain. That if you follow the two stars in the spoon of the Big Dipper, it'll point you to the North Star. And he remembered in that moment that the shore was north. And suddenly, strength returned to him. He moved to the cabin, he started the engine, he pointed the boat in the direction that he needed to go, and he began to head towards the shore. His heart was filled again. He had energy again. There was hope again. And although he still had a long journey to go, and although the fuel was low, and there was still pain in his body, he suddenly felt the hope that what he was experiencing was not the end of the journey. That story in some ways looks a lot like what the journey of lament looks like. It's finding ourselves in situations where we don't know what to do, where sometimes we feel like we can't just go on. But it's when we acknowledge those moments when we allow ourselves to reckon with the pain of life, that we're at the end of the rope, that it can cause us to look beyond ourselves for what we need. And it's there that we remember God and that he is the hope that we need. You see, what changes for the man wasn't the stars. The stars were there all along, constant in their shining. What changed for the man was when he realized that the star was the answer he was looking for all along. And what changes in our journey of lament is the realization that God hasn't changed. He's constant. He's steadfast in love, never ending in mercy. But what changes is when we realize that he's the answer we've been looking for all along. And that's where hope is found. And I pray in your own journey of lament, you would find that God is the answer you're looking for and let hope be brought into your journey. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful. I'm thankful in this moment right now that you're a God that doesn't ask us to run from pain. That we don't have to pretend with you, we don't have to be false with you, but that you actually invite us to be real and honest and that you show us by your word that you'll meet us there. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he would endure suffering so that we could know that our suffering is not the end of the story. Thank you that there's hope in our journeys. And I just pray for my brothers and sisters. Whether they're in suffering right now, whether they will face it, whether they have faced it, whatever it is, I pray Oh God, that you would lift our heads to see the reality of who you are, to remember that you are what we need, that our souls would cry out to you and there we would find you as satisfying by who you are and what you have done. God, help us to embrace the journey. Even now as we prepare to sing, to invite you in, in response to your word, would you meet us here? Would your presence meet us here? Would you come and do what only you can do in this moment. By your spirit, Holy Spirit, have your way right now, we pray in our hearts. Move, we ask. In the good and precious name of Jesus.
Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.